From Moses, the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, this is the In Her Boots podcast, a show about women cultivating the sustainable and organic agriculture movement and how she does it. My name is Lisa Kiverest, and I founded and lead the award-winning Moses In Her Boots project, providing training, resources, and support for women farmers. I'm a farmer myself, running in serendipity with my family in Wisconsin, and am the author of Soil Sisters, a toolkit for women farmers. The In Her Boots podcast celebrates the collaborative spirit of us women farmers and all women working to transform our food system and steward our land, sharing ideas and inspiration with each other. Whether you're a woman with a dream of starting your own farm or already have your hands deep in the soil, there's something for you here. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss anything. Dr. John Ella Holmes is a retired assistant professor from Kansas State University. She retired in 2015 to come home to historic Nicodemus, Kansas, which is the oldest all-African-American town west of the Mississippi River from the Reconstruction period, and today is a national historic site. She is a fifth-generation descendant of original settlers in a community that today raises wheat, milo, and cattle. Johnella is also the executive director of the Kansas Black Farmers Association. We are here today for our last, actually, In Her Boots podcast episode under this resilience theme that we have been exploring this summer. And I am so excited that we are here today with Johnella Holmes from Kansas, who I had the honor of meeting at a Women, Food, and Ag Network conference, oh, I don't know, a couple years ago, Johnella, wasn't it? Now time flies and have kept in touch and found her her story and your aura so inviting and welcoming and inspiring. And I am so honored that you can be with us as we close out this series on resilience, because that is what your story is all about. And thank you for your time and work. And I thought we could kick things off by you sharing, what is what is your personal definition of resilience? Well, thank you, Lisa, for inviting me to do this. I, I am honored. And it's just amazing how the stars align because my whole life and the fact that I'm a fifth generation descendant of original settlers from 1877, we still have uh, land that was owned by those original settlers. I can trace my history back to the actual plantation that my great great grandparents were on. And so it's all been because of that word resilience. Nicodemus is one of the last, and it's the only African-American town west of the Mississippi River. And we are a national historic site. Uh, so we have national rec- recognition. We have the park rangers, the little, you know, green outfits and Smokey the Bear hats running around and uh, doing some interpretation of our history. But that's just how important this American history about this African-American town is. And it's all, I mean, every aspect of it is built on resilience. So resilience to me, it means being steadfast. And as in the scriptures, it says unmovable and always moving forward to maintain your family, your land, your presence, your mind, your body, your soul. And it's being in the moment, but recognizing the history 
and how it has made you who you are and helps you to define those decisions that you make to stay in farming, to live in a farming community, to uh, deal with that whole aspect of farming. And it's been built on resilience and the fact that we defined it by being steadfast. Oh, that's great. And would you share a little bit, Janella, about the, the story of Nicodemus and what went into all of that to bring you where you are today? Oh, absolutely. I love that story. That that story is what makes me interesting. Other than that, I don't, I don't think anybody would even know my name. But um, like I said before, our little town was founded in 1877. And there was an actual, uh, a white man by the name of W.R. Hill, who wanted to populate Graham County and have his own town. And he heard of the Western migration of Blacks. And so he came to this area, which was kind of, there were um, some former Buffalo soldiers who had gotten out of the army that were up in this area. And so he formed a partnership with them. And they said, "Uh, let's go to Kentucky. Let's talk to those people. Let's see if they're interested in coming. And lo and behold, they were. And uh, they actually came out from Scotts County, Kentucky, over three hundred of those original settlers are from the Richard M. Johnson plantation in Scott uh, County, Kentucky. Why is Richard M. Johnson so important other than he was extremely rich, but uh, he was vice president under Van Buren in 1828. His political career came to an end because he absolutely fell in love with one of his slaves and he married, he gave her her freedom. He married her and had two children. And Van Buren, you know, was very adamant about him not running on a ticket with him anymore. He said, fine, you know, Mm. he went back and uh, because his children were not recognized by law, he opened up Choctaw Academy. And part of that building is still uh, standing on the plantation there. And, um, and, but it was built to, to uh, help integrate and, um, have uh, Native Americans, our indigenous brothers and sisters, learn English and the ways of back then what they called the white man and the civilization and take them out of being savages, considered savages. Sorry about that. But anyway, that was also his excuse and his way to legitimately teach his daughters. Those settlers that came out were my great-great-grandparents. My great-grandmother was eight months pregnant. Uh, when she arrived, they came by train from Cincinnati uh, to Ellis County, and then they walked from Ellis to Nicodemus, which is about 35 miles. We've been able to trace all of that history. We've been able to um, document all of it. There are photographs. Um, we're in the Smithsonian, the African American museum there in Washington, D.C. You can find out about Nicodemus in three different locations. And at our peak, there were over 700 people. And well, they also counted cattle and horses too. So, <laughs> but there were over 700, according to the census, at its height. Um, the train didn't come through, even though we raised the $16,000 bond, which was required. We were ready to deed over land to bring the railroad through the Union Pacific decided to go five miles south of us. And that kind of started our demise, but the dirty 
50s and the dirt storms of the 30s, I'm sorry, and then the drought years in the 50s really helped to move families out because they had to find work and they had to relocate. But we've held on. And you've had a wheat growing background since, I mean, continuing today, right? Has that been the primary crop? Absolutely. We do a rotation, of course, out here. Um, We're no-till, and I'm glad that we, you know, we've done research and we've received SARE grants, um, Sustainable Agriculture Research Education Grants, to help us figure out how uh, we need to deal with our land and soil erosion and with drought. And um, one of those things was established probably uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, was to do a rotation. And then um, late 70s and definitely by the 90s, we were doing some no-till farming. But our main crops are, of course, wheat. And um, in the rotation is milo, which is a sorghum. And then we do a uh, resting year in the rotation. Awesome. And how has community played a role in resilience for you with all of that history and all of those generations and all of those those turmoils that you have worked through how has how has community played a role both your local community and also too I would think the support of women in Nicodemus played an important part in the history absolutely absolutely Women don't get the credit, you know, but um, on Richard M. Johnson's plantation, little black girls were allowed to actually go to school also. So when my great great grandmother came out, she was educated. She could read and write. Uh, They kept diaries. They're the ones that kept the notes. The men weren't allowed to, the boys weren't allowed to go to school. So they didn't have that education. So documents and reading them and understanding them and signing them were left to the women, but of course, you know, they were Mrs. Alonzo Alexander, you know, um, they, they weren't Sarah Alexander, or in my grandmother's case, Zena, uh, Zena Johnson. So uh, the women are, they're, they're the shoulders that this community absolutely stands on. And it's because they're resilient. Um, the men would often leave to go find jobs. You know, I'm, I know they wanted to stay. I know they wanted to farm. Uh, but in the late 60s and early 70s, you know, at one one point, all the men were gone from the town uh, site and uh, the township. And it was left for women to go on daily. It was left to them to keep the recordings. It was left to them to have the township meetings. It was left to them to to run the restaurants and the gas stations and and to keep the community going while the men went and found work elsewhere, which often was on the railroads and away from their families for weeks on end. My mother and my father met because my father came up from Mississippi with the crew that helped to build, it was during the WPA programs and the later programs that they had where we actually built our uh, dams and our lakes. And uh, my dad was on a crew that built Webster Lake, which is about 20 miles from Nicodemus. Well, the only place that they could go in the 40s and 50s would have been to Nicodemus to eat, to, to have lodging, to actually have a social life and that sort of thing. And um, that's how he met my mother. Well, after the uh, 
the dam was built, President Eisenhower had started Highway I-70. And so he got on that crew and we eventually moved with my dad and we moved and we moved. And finally in Topeka, he, he stopped there. But I say all of that to say this, when there was a town with no men, the women kept it going. The women farmed. <laughs> the women stayed. We have a woman here named Bertha Carter. Um, oh, I absolutely adore her. On July 30th, right before our annual celebration, and we did it virtually this year, our 142nd celebration, she turned 87 years old. She was noted for being the best harvester. And she could jump down out of those combines and fix the tractors, fix the combines. They, they said there was no better farmer than Miss Bertha Carter. And, and I absolutely believe that. And she stayed here. She's been here her entire life, except for maybe a couple of years where she went, where her husband was working or, or something like that. But Nicodemus has always been her home. That's resilience. That's resilience. Oh, that's amazing. And, and why do you think we as women farmers are so challenged by this concept of resilience? Do you know, it's, it always seems to, even talking about this in our women farmer training program up until the summer fell down at the end of the list, right? We had all these other things we felt we needed to cover. Why is it such a challenge for us to care for ourselves and therefore care for each other better? Because we've been taught that, okay, I'll just say it how I feel it. We've been taught that we're not the important person in, in the relationship and that we've been taught also that the man is the head of the household. We come from a background where there were no rights. You couldn't even own your own land. You know, it had to be in your husband's name and that sort of thing. So we've overcome as women general. I'm not talking about just African-American women. Women general mm -hmm. have had to overcome all of the stigmatism that was associated with women taking care of the household, but not being recognized as real farmers. And that's why I have simply fell in love with the definition of what a farmer is. If you've produced a thousand dollars in, in uh, agriculture and products and value added products, uh, you're, you're a farmer. And when I tell women this, and I said, what are you doing? Oh, well, I have a lavender garden. Well, how big is your lavender garden? Oh, it's two acres. You're a farmer. <laughs> you're a farmer. And don't let anyone tell you that you're not. You know, and I, I um, and, and so with this definition and with the USDA recognizing and with their becoming programs called beginning programs and women programs where women can be recognized as farmers, as having legitimate crops, as running farm operations, they are able to obtain that coveted farm number. And then you're legitimized. You can get grants. You can get help. You can put some of your land in CRP. You can do whatever you know you need to do to sustain once you get recognized in that format. And that's not a luxury we've had. I, I've seen photographs. We've, we've got beautiful historical uh, farming photographs. And in them, the men are out there plowing with their horses and and, uh, you know, doing all of this. Well, guess what? The women were doing more than just fixing breakfast and lunch for them and dinner to have out there in the fields. 
they were also driving those trucks, those wheat trucks into, you know, to the silos and doing all of this other kind of thing. They were helping their husbands or men work their farms. And now we're just now getting that recognition. Oh, that's so true and important. And how does that drive for recognition and community building play into your work today with the Kansas Black Farmers Association. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be and and how those themes play out in the work you're doing today? I love this story. I absolutely love this story. I was still at Kansas State University where I was an assistant professor. And, I, you know, I've always had my connections and, and with Nicodemus. I, I, I always came home on the weekends. I did all my vacations here and I did all of that sort of thing. And the Kansas Black Farmers Association had been up and running. Well, they were wanting to have some grants written in case they always helped, you know, because of our College of Agriculture. And uh, someone said, well, John Ella's there and she's working TRIO programs and she writes grants for TRIO and uh, she's bringing in millions of dollars for them. Can she write something for us? And that's how I became, because a cousin has always farmed the land. I've never had an opportunity to farm any land. You know, it was always taken care of by the, the male cousins and that sort of thing. But they thought of me in that format. And I said, okay, you guys, I'll be happy to help. I'll do whatever I need to do. But I want a real position. I don't want a presidency. I don't want anything like that. I think you need to create an executive director. And that way I can do a lot more for you than just write some grants. They created the spot. They liked the salary, which was zero, <laughs> all volunteer. And, and so that's how I was able to start working with them and helping helping them. And I absolutely love it. And and I think it's one of the reasons that I was, I, I was encouraged to take early retirement because I wanted to be back on the land. I needed to be here. It wasn't an option. I needed to be here and to help move the the Kansas Black Farmers program forward. Wow, what a history. That let's shift a little Janella and talk about the practical on this topic of resilience for women farmers. What are some ideas either and they could be small practical personal things you do to bigger broader ideas on what we women can do to boost our resilience. Some like Tools for the toolbox, if you will, or things that you have seen in your community that have worked? Well, uh, there's always power in numbers. And, oh, I was so inspired by the uh, Women in Food Conference where I met you all and how you were all working together and had this unit. And we here in Kansas had already started. There were about four of us working together, recognizing ourselves. A lot of the wives in the couples, you know, taking ownership of the name farmer. And, and so there's always strength in numbers. So it's finding that sister farmer that's working together with them, finding out what's working for them, what opportunities are out there. The other thing is never absolutely removing no from your vocabulary. Mm. No, I can't do this. No, I can't get a loan. No, I can't. I can't write this grant or no, I, I'm just a housewife or, or no, I'm just, I just have a lavender garden. You know, it's taking that word out and replacing with it with, hmm, I think I can. 
I know I can. Yes, I can. And so going through that progression and working there, if you can't write a grant, if you don't know what to ask, then you get with people like you, you guys out of Wisconsin and ask what's working, what isn't working, what organizations help you, what organizations can I tap into, what um, podcast can I listen to, you know, what newsletter could I read? Is there anybody that might have a, a successful lavender farm that I might tap into, even if it's a man? We can still glean precious information from them. Uh, well, how is your farm working? What kind of, uh, do you use Quicken Books to keep your records? Even to those kind of details, it's us opening our mouths, working in groups, learning from each other, and gleaning whatever opportunity. The bottom line is, I went and I sat in the USDA, FSA office, the NRCS office. I sat there until I had someone to walk me through each one of those programs, how it would benefit us, and what procedures and steps we needed to go through paperwork we had to be had to have completed or um, accounted for and then I could move on and help others oh I love that and that idea and that's what you see so much in our women farmer community is that collaboration right of it's not it defies competition and traditional business models of why would you share everything you know with somebody who might be doing the same thing cuz because we're stronger together as you have so so evidenced in your work Johnella that's great how do you personally keep going in the sense that there's so much that you do and yet and so much work that still needs to be done as we all know in all categories what what drives you to keep that positive spirit and energy of yours so so I was gonna say vibrant, but I would call it overflowing. What what keeps me going? Well, I, I quit every other month and they just won't take my resignations. But um on a more serious note, I I love the land. I I value what we have to contribute here, not only in Nicodemus, but Kansas. I, I love what we do. I love what it looks like. And when I have doubt or when I feel tired, I get emotional. So please forgive me. Or when I feel fused or worn out. And I mean, um, just because we're in this, this pandemic and we're at home, I tell you, I must have three or four Zoom meetings a day. <laughs> um, everybody thinks you're available. So that's why I so greatly appreciated how you asked you know me to to be a part of this was you gave me some choices <laughs> and a lot of that doesn't happen but when I'm feeling overwhelmed and uh, a little bit over my head you know I've been working with Senator Pat Roberts office on uh, the legislation that we want to make sure that small farmers are going to get some aid and some forgiveness of debt and so they're working on that, and I had the opportunity to work with that. And I just had to take a moment, get a good cup of coffee, and my favorite mug is the one from the Women Food Ag Network, celebrating 20 years. So that was from, I think, 2016. My favorite mug, and just go sit on my porch. And in Kansas, 
it really is flat out here because I can see the silo towers 17 miles away from my home. <laughs> That's the vision that I have. And then it just brings it all back to me. Modern Farmer Magazine did an article on, on uh, myself in the community. And uh, I was able to do three, three generations because my daughter and her family also moved back to the area. And so it has, has a beautiful picture of me, my daughter, and my granddaughter, who is just becoming a, a, a watermelon uh, green thumb gardener. So I'm just so proud of her. And she's only seven. Mm. And, and so I look at those things and I take a moment and I recenter myself and I'll go to the women in farming uh, conference to get rejuvenated. And, or, uh, you know, I just go across the state when we could. And I meet with some of my, we, we call ourselves the soul soil sisters. <laughs> and I meet with some of them and just have some coffee and, and get my rejuvenation there. And you can see that on our website, which is the www.kansasblackfarmers.org. Uh, and you can see the list of, of some of the women and how we've used your book, Lisa, and, and, and uh, get motivated that way. Oh, that makes me so happy to hear. Thank you. The, the magic wand question, Johnella, if you could change something, do something as we move into the future to bring more women committed to the land, committed to sustainability and healthy soils from a variety of backgrounds, ages, communities, what would, what would that be? What would be your, your marching orders for all of us to do more of, to, to, to get more done together? Oh, to get more done together. We need to identify some time, three times or four times a year quarterly, where we actually have, even if it's Zoom, a, a, a get together, a, a coffee and share some ideas and what's going on. I, I think you know, if I would like to see the Women Food and Ag Network to actually do more surveying of us so that we can communicate some ideas and sending them out to to women in farming uh, and women in gardening and urban gardeners and urban farms and, and that sort of thing. I would like to see that organization really put together a database of all of us amazing women that are out there so that we, I might not know that Mary Jane is known for her tomato plants in Atchison, Kansas, which is three hours from me. But if I could look on that database and I could see that, or I could work with the organization and, and identify those women in my, in my state, and then we help to create the database, then that would give me and others an opportunity. Well, let me go check out let me check out them. Okay. Oh, okay. They have a bee farm. And I had a workshop, a workshop with the Kansas Black Farmers last fall in October. And I had a beekeeper that came. He generated over $300,000 in profit. And I'm like, oh my goodness, <laughs> give me some bees, you know? And so we need to know about these things. We need to sit on the advisory boards for the USDA, the FSA offices and NRCS offices. We need to sit on their advisory board and make sure that they're steering some of their agenda towards women. Excellent. 
Yeah. And, you know, perhaps that is to a, a silver lining of our current COVID situation and all of us, some of us myself begrudgingly getting into the virtual space, but it does open up opportunity for us to connect. And even with our Moses in Her Boots project and our normal workshops that, yes, are wonderful to have on farm in the summer and bring people together in person, we now have the opportunity to connect with you and connect with new communities. And how can, however we move forward, it'll definitely be a a component that you're so right we can do so much so much more with well thank you so much john ella this has been great and thank you for all the important work you do and all of the i love what you said earlier about how women shoulder your community and you show us how we shoulder each other around the globe and uh, we definitely back to that magic wand need more of that so thank you very much for sharing your story appreciate it Thanks for listening to our In Her Boots podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiverest, with the Moses In Her Boots project. This episode's audio engineer was Liam Kiverest of TechSocket.net. The podcast was brought to you by the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, Moses. The mission of Moses is to educate, inspire, and empower farmers to thrive in a sustainable organic system of agriculture. For more information on Moses, In Her Boots, and a bounty of organic resources, check out mosesorganic.org.